Today's reading is from 1 John 2, um, 18 through 27. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is God's word. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, uh, to uh, that you've had already. Uh, great to see you. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we've heard already, you are a wonderful, loving Father. And a Father who gives us such wonderful encouragements. A Father who acts for our good at all times. A Father who has saved us from uh, eternal separation, by, if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're a father who warns us, as any good father would, that there are dangers that we must avoid. So, Father, as we come to one of those passages of Scripture which is a blunt, stark warning, would we understand it rightly? Would we hear it as your kindness to us and respond rightly by trusting in your Son, we pray in his great name. Amen. Now, uh, if you're here this morning and uh, are not naturally uh, British, perhaps watch out. Watch out for us Brits, because by all accounts, we are deceptive. Or at least historically, that was true. Uh, you know, the, the uh, National Records Office, uh, uh, classified documents in government get released 40 years uh, after they uh, get locked away. And, um, of course, if they're really secret secrets, they do get released, but have black lines all the way through them and you can't read them. But anyway, most documents get released uh, 40 years uh, after uh, the event. And something popped out last year. It was from the British Defence Deception Group, and it made the press, because it's quite amusing in one sense, reporting of uh, how the British Defence Capability, sorry, um, Deception Capability Unit, did you know such a thing existed? Um, met in the early 70s with their US counterparts to talk about respectively how they deceived people. Odd meeting. But here's the, uh, the British record of the events from the early 70s. 
There is considerable difference between the US and the UK in our use of deception. It is a way of life for the UK citizen to use guile in almost all his dealings, whether friend or foe. Certainly in military circles, a British commander will invariably attempt to fox his adversary. In the United States, no financial or logistic constraints have in recent times hampered the commander in the field. So the subtleties of deception are not required. Put simply, their defense budget is so high, there is no requirement for cunning and guile in America. There weren't those happy times when the Brits were very clever and crafty and America was very wealthy. Forty uh, odd years ago. So probably not true now. But interestingly, they were recording officially in a document, us Brits, we're deceptive. Watch out for us. But no one got to read the document, so it doesn't really matter. John says very simply in this little section of his letter, don't be deceived. Verse 26, we just had read, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray or deceive you. Don't be deceived or led astray, he says. Now, a number will be joining us today. Uh, we're, we're spending a good block of this term looking at this letter of 1 John. We've had five or six weeks in it already. And 1 John, it's a letter written. Uh, in the first century by the Apostle John, who'd uh, been one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, really for two purposes. He wants to assure the Christians. He wants them to know for certain that they're the real deal, genuine believers. And he wants them to say no to idols. Now, the, what's going on, there's a group of people, we'll read about them here, uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. There are a group of people who had been members of the church, they'd left the church, and are saying, come join us. Join our They wouldn't have called it this, but join our cult. Our Jesus, he's not so demanding. He won't place restrictions at all upon your life. He won't ask anything of you. You'll just have much higher experiences. They'd sort of got their Play-Doh out and made a false Jesus. And John says to the believers uh, he's writing to, maybe in Ephesus, look, I want you to know for certain you're the real deal. Don't move from where you are and say no to this idol, this new cult. So it's a, on one hand, it's a pastoral letter, or on the other hand, it's a polemical letter. And this is one of the sections where he sharpens his pencil and says, there are some people who will lie to you, wittingly or not, There are people who want to deceive you. And if you follow them, you will not be following Jesus Christ. Just watch out for them. Don't be deceived. And of course, that remains true. It's timelessly true. So in the spiritual arena, if you want to call it that, there are always those who want to deceive, and often it'll be knowingly so. This is one little example I read uh, last week. Uh, I found this quite striking. may not see the uh, obvious parallel at first. This was just from, from Richard Dawkins. Obviously not someone calling himself a Christian, but uh, someone who's quite willing to deceive. So this was just from his website, writing uh, to, I guess, those who visit frequently. We should go beyond humorous ridicule. We should sharpen our barbs to a point where they really hurt. I think we should abandon the 
uh, irremediably religious, I guess that's me, maybe you as well, irremediably religious, precisely because that's what they are, irremediable. They're beyond the pale. I am more interested in the fence-sitters, who haven't really considered the questions of God, eternal life, that sort of thing, who really haven't considered the questions very long or very carefully. I think they are likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody wants to be the butt of contempt. There he is saying, quite, don't, don't try and reason with people. Don't try and use logic to persuade someone there's no God. Don't bother with that. Just mock them. Bully them verbally until they're sort of so embarrassed that they say, oh, of course there can't be a God. I'd be really silly to believe such a thing. Oh, that's quite striking. I'm not trying to persuade people logically. I want to bully people because no one likes being mocked. It's Friday admission, isn't it? I want to deceive people. I'm quite happily do that to persuade them to my point of view. The shocking thing in this passage here that we look at today in 1 John is that John is warning that there'll be some who call themselves Christians will try and deceive you as well. Uh, if you've been with us, you know, he said there are three main ways that um, these, uh, what he calls them here, antichrists, so we'll come to that, but these false teachers, three ways that they'll reveal themselves in their obedience, do they obey God? In their love, do they love one another? And here it's in their belief. Those are the three sort of marks that he assesses. Obedience, love, belief. And here it's belief that goes wrong. So I think the text breaks down a little bit like this. He warns some will lie to you, verses 18 and 19. But you're protected if you're a Christian, 2021. So remain in him. Again, it's not a perfect baptism sermon, I'm conscious of that. But John would say, if you're a Christian, remain with him. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you asked, are you being lied to? Are you being deceived in some way? He's wanting just to warn us that that takes place all the time. Three little things then. First, some will lie to you. Verse 18. Some will lie. Uh, Verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Wow. Quite strong language, isn't it? The the antichrists have come. You could easily read this and think, hold on, John, you've just spent a good chunk of the first chapter talking about love and loving one another, and this isn't particularly loving, is it? Calling someone an antichrist, that's a bit rude, you'd have to say, if nothing else. That's divisive. Why can't all Christians just get along? There are, you know, there aren't many Christians who just get along. No matter, doesn't matter really what they believe. Well, hold on, you just need to think about that for one moment. Most people would concur that Jesus is a loving man, or was a loving man when he walked the planet. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbour as yourself. These sort of fundamental principles we may take for granted, or certainly uh, uh, be well aware of. Clearly, he's a loving man. But in his life, love is not silence. So he'll quite willingly describe the Pharisees, the religious teachers who he thought were hoodwinking the people as whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers, quite strong language. 
Love is not weakness. He's quite happy to go into the temple courts. And when he sees corrupt money changers there, quite happy to turn their tables over. Say, get out, that's a disgrace. I mean, love is not weakness. And love is not avoiding the truth. He's quite happy to stand there and say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because actually revealing when something has gone wrong, revealing corruption, that's, that's, that's an essential part of love, isn't it? So think of it this way. Uh, manufacturer produces a batch of powdered milk. And it's somehow, in the processing of it all, it goes wrong, it's got corrupted, but they don't realize it goes off to the shops. So there's this now poisonous milk. What name a brand, but this poisonous powdered milk in the shops. Now, if someone realized that, and you're a parent, you'd want to know. You'd want someone to say, hey, there's a problem. Take that stuff back. It's dangerous. That is not true milk. It's dangerous. You'd want a warning, wouldn't you? That would be a loving thing to do, to be warned in in that situation. Or in the business environment, you're approached by a a dubious businessman from some former Soviet republic and offers you uh, a deal of a lifetime. It's worth millions and millions of pounds to you. And uh, you think, well, maybe. Maybe I'll just do a little bit of research. So you send someone off to do a bit of research. And actually, he's made his fortune by lying and cheating. Um, when he falls out with a business partner, they tend to die, unfortunately. Now, that's useful information before you go into business with someone like that. He's not going to be a true partner. He's dangerous. You'd want a warning. That's just kind to be warned in such a scenario. And here, that's what John is doing. He's saying, look, some, there'll be some that you know well. They're not true teachers. Chapter 4, verse 1, he'll call them false prophets. Anti-Christs. Against Christ. Obviously all it means. False prophets. They're teaching things that are not true. They're dangerous. They'll take you away from the one who saves you for eternity. You'd want a warning, wouldn't you? When the stakes are so high? That's what John is doing here. Now, let's get into the detail. Verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. That sounds dramatic. But uh, in the New Testament, the last hour, the last days, that's merely the time between when Jesus first came and when he next comes. So it's all the last days or the last hour. So it's going to be quite a long hour, uh, this last one. And Jesus himself had said, read it, Matthew 24 or Mark 13, that in this last days there will be false prophets. In Matthew 24, his disciples ask him, what's what's the end of the world going to be like? And he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I'm the Christ. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And John just says, Hey, remember what Jesus said? Yeah, that's taking place. Lots of false ideas and false prophets around. And verse 19, they've belonged to the church for a while. That's the really shocking thing. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. It shows they were never really Christians at all. 
Now, what exactly have they got wrong? What's their their error, the mistake they're making? Well, we get that in verse 22. Uh, Who is the liar? What's the mistake? Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. Or an example of that, he denies the Father and the Son. So what's the issue? Denying that Jesus is the Christ. Well, the philosophy doing the rounds at the time was, um, uh, amongst some, was that Jesus was just a man. The sort of Lloyd Webber version. He's a man. He's just a man. Um, and, you know, and so on it goes. The, um, but uh, he's just a man. And then at, at Jesus' baptism, he sort of, uh, some godlike uh, spirit lands on him. And then just before he dies, the godlike spirit disappears. That was sort of the false idea doing the rounds at the time. Gnosticism, technically called. And if you ever come across any of these little books, the Gospel of Thomas or Mary um, or Philip, they're all written uh, at least a 100 years after these events, and they all have that sort of teaching in them. That's the sort of the, uh, the false idea doing the rounds at the time. It's probably what John's writing about. Well, okay, so what? That was then. Apart from it still happens all the time, very popular sort of idea. Jesus, nice bloke, good man, Christ, something different. So in fact, was it 18 months or maybe two years ago now, Philip Pullman's book. He wrote a book just titled The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. You just have to separate them. Of course there's a historical man Jesus, no one denies that. That's established historical fact. But the other bit, don't like that. That's what John's writing about. Or, of course, if you if you if you can read the Quran, it declares that Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a prophet. But he didn't die on a cross. Just before he was about to die, he swapped places with someone and he ran off and let someone else die for him. Actually, it doesn't sound like a very nice man doing that, does he? But anyway, that's what happens in the Quran. Or Tragically, uh, a fairly recent survey, I guess, in the Church of England of the vicars within the Church of England. A quarter don't believe that Jesus died to pay for sin. A third don't believe that Jesus rose bodily. Verse 19, they went out from us, never really belonged to us. They would have remained with us if they did, but their going shows that none of them belong to us. They don't really, John would say, not really Christians. Can't really say that. Watch out. Some will lie to you, says John. Don't be deceived. Can you just, just, just so you know, some will lie. There'll always be some who want to deceive you. You need to recognize that. You need to know that. So you're forewarned and forearmed. And why does it matter so much? Well, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Look, if you're denying that Jesus is the divine promised King, you have no relationship with God at all. You just, you can't have. Or verse 25, you don't have eternal life. The stakes could not be higher. Some will lie to you. Don't be shocked by that, says John. Some will lie. Second thing, more positively, second thing, but you're protected. Verses 20 to 21. Verse 20, but you, you have an anointing 
Sounds good. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do it. So you do know that you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Okay, it's fairly complicated stuff. But let, let, just two questions, I think, crack it open. First, then, what is what is he talking about? What is the anointing? You have an anointing from the Holy One. Well, it's a sort of phrase that gets used in Christian jargon. Badly, I think. There was, uh, we had some visitors here last week. Terrific, lovely, uh, family. And, uh, their children went over, uh, with the kids' work. And, uh, the father afterwards said, this man, Richard Quiddle, who works with the children, this man has a powerful anointing from the Lord to work with children. Which is very nice. Richard was very pleased by that. It's good to know that. It's a nice thing to say. Um, I think what he meant was, he does a really good job. I think that's what he meant by that language. Because the idea of having something special, here, every Christian has an anointing. Verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This anointing is something every single Christian believer has. It's not something for the spiritual elite. Best guess, John is using this language because this was the language of the false teachers. We have the anointing. You do not. And um, so just, eh, nonsense. Yeah, everyone has it. Biblically, what would it be? It's just the, it's the Holy Spirit. In numerous places, whenever this language is used. So in Jesus' life, at his baptism, he's anointed with the Spirit, Luke 4.18. We're told similarly for um, Acts 4.27, Acts 10.38, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. Peter is, so excuse me, the Apostle Paul is anointed with the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1.21. That's just what it means to have an anointing from God is you receive God's Spirit. There's a sense in which when you become a Christian, the Christian life is like living or doing a tandem skydive. I don't know if you've ever done such a thing. I've not. But um, you look at that, you watch people do such a thing and think, okay, I guess when you jump out of the plane, there's a mixture. It's exhilarating and a little nerve-wracking. Um, because, all you know, free fall looks a little bit scary to me. Um, but it's okay. You don't panic because there's someone on your back who knows precisely what they're doing and will pull the string, whatever it's called, ripcord, pull the ripcord, at the appropriate time, all will be well because you're attached to someone else. And standard Christian living, when you become a Christian, Jesus comes and lives with you, in you, by his Spirit. No special feeling about that. John's just normal Christian teaching here. Every Christian believer has an anointing, has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. You see, it's not something for the elite. All believers have him. So uh, a little while ago, I went and spoke at a a, a university, Christian Union, and someone, a very nice young man, came up to me and said, do you have the anointing tonight? I was tempted just to be a little bit rude and say, I left it back in London. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I actually, I might have it in my pocket somewhere. That's That's not what the Bible means. Every Christian has this gift. It's the Spirit. 
Okay, so what's the anointing? It's God's spirit dwelling within a believer. Uh, Second question, again, just to make sure we understand it. Verse 20. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Is that one thing or two things? So some would say it's one thing. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and therefore you know everything. This is uh, the idea that as soon as you become a Christian, God downloads everything you'll ever need into your head, heart, and that's it. You don't need anything from that point onwards. It's a bit like, if you've seen the film, a bit like The Matrix. I'm always quite jealous of that. You know, they can just download anything into their heads. Brilliant. You know, so I want to learn Kung Fu. 30 seconds later, oh, I can do Kung Fu. Oops, I'm about to die. I need to fly this helicopter. 30 seconds later, oh, I know how to be a helicopter pilot. What a brilliant skill. Can you, you know, you just imagine. Difficult business deal. I want to be brilliant at business. Fine. You know, you've got a tennis match that you really want to win. You download Feder into your head. I mean, how good would that be to be able to do such a thing? But some would say that's what's being spoken of here. As soon as you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, therefore you know everything. God will give you directly into your head all the knowledge you'll ever need. Direct revelations. That's it. You get zapped constantly. That's all you ever need, zapped with voices from God. Is that what John means? He does not. So chapter 4, verse 1, we'll get there eventually. He'll say, dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they've come from God. Test them. Verse 2, how do you test them? This is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus is Christ. Has come in the flesh is from God. It just how do you know if something's true? You just test it against what the, the apostles taught. It's very simple. See, every cult that's ever been founded, every false prophet is would say, God has spoken directly to me. That's the claim of every leader of any false movement, any deception. God has spoken directly to me. And now I can tell you. So just at the beginning, uh, in September, of course, uh, Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Moonies, died. And presumably the cult dies with him. But there's just a classic example. Age 15, he says, God spoke directly to him. Anyone else here? Nope. Anyone else witness it? Nope. God spoke directly to me. Jesus, he says, spoke to me and said, continue my work of marrying people in large-scale ceremonies, as Jesus often did. Um... Every false idea has this, starts in the same way. God has spoken directly to me and says, no, no, don't listen to that. How do you test? Does it believe, does it concur with the scriptures? Or as he puts it, verse 24, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. What will protect you against being deceived? Well, there's these two things working together, two things. Yes, God's Spirit, but also the teaching of the Apostles, Bible. You need those two things together, and they work together. Anyone who's become a Christian, what happens? You hear the Bible read, you read it for yourself, someone explains it to you, and you think, yes, that's true. 
that is absolutely true. I see that that's true because what's happening there? You hear the word of God and the spirit of God convicts you that it's true. The two go hand in hand. But there are two things going on here, working together. You are protected, says John, by the spirit of God teaching you the word of God. They'll go hand in hand. If they disagree, uh -uh -uh. So question, what do you do when someone says, well, of course that was true back then, in Bible time, but 21st century, we've moved on. God has led us into more truth. We're spiritually more advanced than they were back then. To which John says, don't be deceived, verse 24, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. Or as you'll put it, um, just over a page, if you want to look up chapter 2, verse 9, he's writing to the same scenario, uh, 2, sorry, 2 John, verse 9, 2 John, verse 9, he'll put it this way, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So anyone who says, yes, that was true back then, but we've moved on. John says, they've just run ahead, never listen to them. Never listen to them. The very last interview I had before being accepted into the Church of England, I uh, was with a bishop, he was a very nice man, uh, but he said to me, ah, oh, yes, you're a young man, and you, had a, you have a simple faith. I was like you once, but I've matured now. My canvas has broadened. And uh, I wasn't confident enough. I, what I should have said was, what a shame. Don't run ahead, Bishop, because you'll lose the Father and the Son. Stick to what you heard at the very beginning. See, this is what John means, verse 27. Uh, As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you. He doesn't mean, don't bother reading my letter in which I'm trying to teach you. That would be odd. He does mean, you don't need anyone who's going to teach you new things. Who says... Very good. John and the rest of the apostles, they gave you school-level Christianity. Now let me take you to university level. We can upgrade you, we can supersize you in your Christian faith. You don't need anything new. What you were given at the beginning, that's what you need. Some will lie to you, he says, but you're protected if you're a Christian. You have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God. You need to let that teach you, and as it does... The Spirit will persuade you. Yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. So, quite simply, what does he say? Remain in him. That's the whole point of this little section here. Remain in him. There are only two imperatives in the whole section. They're verse 24 and verse 27. Verse 24. Here's the command. See that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. Verse 27, right at the end of it. Remain in him. Remain. How do you ensure that the apostles' teaching from the beginning remains in you? Read it. Dwell on it. If you don't, there'll be siren voices who say, we offer you a a Jesus Christ. He won't be so demanding. You can live life your own way. You can basically do what you want. And Jesus, our Jesus, will still say, well done you quite an appealing message at times. He says, don't be fooled by the liars. Verse 24. If the word of God remains in you, 
you'll also remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he's promised us, even eternal life. If the word of God remains in you, then you remain in relationship with God as Father, Son and Spirit. Do you see, before we finish, Christianity is neither an academic faith or a mystical faith. It is one that says you have to have knowledge, but within that then you know God personally. See, most other faith systems, religious systems, drift one way or the other. It's just a body of knowledge you have to know. You have to, you work your way through, you know, you can be a Scientologist and work your way through the different operating levels. Uh, It's just you pay your money, you do your courses. It's just all mental, it's all knowledge. Then you have mysticism, don't believe anything, just uh, smoke this cigarette and all will be well and daydream and off you go and there's mysticism. But of course the Christian faith is, no, there is a body of knowledge that is true, objectively. And when you dwell upon that, you meet God personally. Both. Verse 24, see that what you've heard from the beginning, the scriptures, remains in you. If it does, you'll remain in the Father, in the Son and the Father. You'll know you're meeting with them. Don't be deceived. It's the word of God that allow you to test the Spirit, see whether something's true or false. Don't be deceived. Many will want to deceive you, he says. The, uh, I don't know if they'll ever get round to making all the, um, the Narnia films. Oh, they'll run out of money. All uh, but um, uh, this, the silver chair, I like best of all, perhaps, after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which everyone loves best of all. But uh, the silver chair, I don't know how many of these books you've ever read as children. But, um, but by this stage, in the Narnia novels, the silver chair tells the story of Eustace, uh, Scrub, Jill Pole, and uh, Puddle Glum. He's obviously um, obviously a marsh wiggle. Anyway, run with it. They're all fantasy novels, of course. But uh, these three are on a quest. They're sent by Aslan, the king. Uh, they're sent on a quest to find Prince Rillian. He's the heir to the throne of Narnia, and he's been captured, taken. He sends them all off on a quest. And eventually they find Prince Rillian. That's a bit complicated, but let me simplify. They find him, and what's happened is he's been captured for ten years by the Green Witch. And she has deceived him with her sorcery. Only once a day does he remember who he truly is, at midnight. And so a little before midnight every day, the queen straps him into a silver chair. And so even though at midnight he remembers, I'm the prince, I'm brilliant, I know who I am, I'm the heir to the throne of Narnia, he can't do anything about it. One day, Eustace, Jill, Puddleglum, they find him. He's there at midnight. And he comes to his senses, really, and he says, I know who I am. And they're all a bit scared, because he's quite a big bloke, and they're not. And oh, what do we do? Eventually, they know what they have to do. And so they take a sword, and they cut him free. And he's liberated from his deception. And they can go. Off he escapes, and hurrah, and kills the witch, Hazar. And uh, all is well. But there's a sense in which, and I think this is Lewis's point in that, Many will be deceived. Somewhere we know what's true. We know there's a God. We know we need to be put right with him. But many of us will be deceived. Many of us are Christians, may be deceived at different points in our lives. But the Spirit of God is within you. And when you read the Word of God and have it reminded what is true, that will free you from the deception. 
They'll see you through their lives. You can get off of your silver chair and go and live again. Don't be deceived. Don't be naive. It's a warning we all need to hear. It's not the best news in the world, is it? But don't be deceived. The Word of God and the Spirit of God together will keep you so you can see Jesus Christ for who he is, the Saviour we need. Let me do this in prayer together. Our Father, we want to thank you again that you give us warnings that we need. We are often like little children who would run into danger were it not for you shouting at us. Father, we'd not rather not be shouted at, and this warning today, it's not the most comfortable passage to read. A little uncomfortable with some of John's language. But we recognize it as a kindness from you. So pray that we'd heed it, that you would be at work within us, that we would remain in your word and therefore remain in relationship with you, our Father and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we not be deceived, we pray, in his great name.